John 21, verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you out to where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had also leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is it to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who's bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. May God bless the reading and now the preaching of his word. Amen. It has to be in the back of Peter's mind. Probably for all the disciples. That fundamental question of the moment. Does Jesus even want Peter in his service. His rejection of Christ was public and well-known. His tendency to act before he thinks had created challenges for the ministry from time to time. It's one thing to be personally forgiven and reconciled to Jesus. Jesus was always ready to receive Peter's repentance. But personal reconciliation and a commission back to the front lines of gospel ministry are two different things. Does Jesus want Peter in his service? Where does he go from here? The setting sets off feelings of deja vu, doesn't it? There's a charcoal fire. There's Jesus' words, truly, truly. And a question and answer repeated three times. Much has changed since Peter denied Jesus that night. But the real question is, has Peter, does he now have what it takes to be fully devoted to Christ? When Jesus predicted Peter's denials, it was in the context of Peter's own boasting. The other disciples were there, but Peter said, Lord, I will lay down my life for you. 
Matthew adds the detail of Peter comparing himself directly to the others. Though they may all fall away, I will never fall away. Jesus wants to know what Peter thinks of these words now. And so he asks, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? This will be hard for Peter. But it's clear that Jesus' goal is not embarrassment, but restoration. And this is a necessary component of repentance. Peter's sins were public. The other disciples had heard his boasting, and they knew well of his denials. Public acknowledgement isn't necessary for forgiveness. But true repentance is And public acknowledgement is often a powerful sign of that. Jesus is pointing out the elephant in the room. If Peter is, like the other disciples, going to devote his life to Christ's service, and if these men are supposed to labor happily side by side with Peter for the gospel, we've got to clear the air. Does Peter see the error not just in his denials, but in his sinful attitude, the attitude that those denials were ordained to illustrate. When we can't admit sin in front of others, it's either because we aren't repentant, not willing to admit that it was sin, or because we think more about our own embarrassment than our reconciliation and truth. Public sin needs public confession for the demonstration of true repentance and to clear the air with all offended parties. The victims of our sin deserve a real apology. Yes, of course. Apologies make reconciliation much easier. But also, witnesses to sin deserve the acknowledgement that we recognize it to have been sin. The disciples in faith surely have forgiving hearts. But does Peter know that he needs forgiveness? Not just from the betrayals, but from the self-righteousness that led to them. Do you love me more than these? Look at these men, Peter. There was a time when you were sure that you loved me more than they. And what say you now? Do you love me more than these? And you know what? Peter has changed. He's aware of the limits of his own love and faithfulness. What he thinks about serving Christ in his own strength is that it can't be done. Notice that Peter's answer ignores that part of the question entirely. And that's not bad. He's he's passed the first test, so to speak. He does love Jesus, and he says so, but he will not compare himself or his love to the other disciples. What's more, he offers no, no proof, no measure of his love, no personal guarantee Instead, he casts himself on the Lord's knowledge. You know I love you. 
Accepting this, Jesus drops the comparative aspect in his second question. Verse 16, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now we're able to get at Peter's heart. No comparisons, no analysis of the group, no self-righteousness or measuring one against the other. We're getting at Peter's heart. Do you love me? And again, a third time in verse 17, do you love me? Now, Peter's grieved by the questioning. The sense of deja vu has to be strong here. He's grieved that Jesus, who knows the answer, asks it again and again. But there is no indignation in Peter's response. No self-righteous boasting. Because his answer, yes, I love you, is grounded not in anything of his own doing, but in his awareness that Jesus knows all things. Another pastor put it this way, within his heart, Peter is convinced that he now possesses this humbler love, but he's learned his lesson. He does not dare to appeal to anything within himself, so he appears, appeals to his Lord's omniscience. Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. What do you think is going to keep you in the faith? through all the years and all the ups and downs of life? Will it be the zeal of your personal commitment? You think it will be the example of a faithful spouse or parents? Theological knowledge? If your answer to the question of what will keep you in the faith is anything other than the power of Jesus, You're wrong. John already taught us that we cannot do anything apart from Christ, the true vine. And make no mistake, here we see we cannot even remain in him without his power. There was a time when Peter thought his own zeal and courage would keep him in the faith. Or his personal love, how devoted he felt toward Jesus But these and all the good things I just listed are the fruits of remaining in the vine. They are not what can keep us there. And here it is for the disciples and the world to see. Peter gets it. Not I, but Christ through me. Remaining in saving faith to Christ, not I, but Christ through me. The ministry and work of the church, not I, but Christ through me. We all have varied callings. Callings to serve the church in different ways. To work in scholarship. To witness to Christ in different spheres of influence among people that we alone can influence uniquely. Callings to live in a particular family. Callings to parent a -a one-of-a-kind child. How do we expect to be faithful in those callings? To walk with Christ, we must be faithful in each of those callings. So 
How do we expect to do it? How will you be faithful to be the child of Justin and Megan? How will you be faithful to Christ at your specific school? How will you be faithful as a member of Covenant of Grace? How will you be faithful to Christ as a sister to Aubrey? Or parents to Luke? Wife to Matt? How will you be faithful to Christ in the use of your wealth? Or in the way you conduct yourself in times of want? How will you be faithful as someone tempted to anxiety? Or someone battling Addiction. How will you be faithful to Christ among coworkers who don't even know him? Or among homeschooling families who know of Christ, but not his transformative power? How will we do these things? Peter knows how. Lord, you know all things. You know I love you, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Peter likewise has many callings, and the one Jesus is dealing with here specifically is a calling to apostolic ministry, to be a shepherd of the sheep. That's why his response in each of Peter's three answers is some form of feed my lambs. Feed my lambs, how fitting. You think about that? Wasn't Peter himself like the one who had wandered from the 99? And here is Jesus coming after him and fully restoring him, not just to fellowship, but to useful kingdom service. Peter says he loves the Lord. Jesus knows that he does. And now Peter has a unique experience with the danger of self-righteousness, with the weakness of human faith. And take that experience, that awareness, Peter, that love for me, feed my lambs. The sheep of Christ, those who know his voice and follow, they need humble and sympathetic service. Offer it to them. Don't stay here with these nets and these fishing boats. Go be a fisher of men and a shepherd of the sheep. As an aside, if you want to know why our philosophy of ministry is what it is at Covenant of Grace, look no further to the Lord's instructions to Peter. Peter is charged three times to show his love for Christ by the ministry of feeding the sheep, leading them to the word of Christ, teaching them the word of Christ, equipping them to live in response to the word of Christ. A faithful pastor who's now with the Lord once asked, why did Jesus put so much emphasis on feeding the sheep? And he answered, because when the sheep of Christ are fed and nurtured and filled with the strength of Christ in his word, they become a mighty army turned loose on the world. Scholars of biblical Greek are quick to point out that the ministry to which Peter is called here is described using all verbs and no nouns. (laughs) Peter isn't simply to take on a job title or to hold an office. That is, he's not called to be somebody. He's called to do something. Peter is to feed and to tend 
the lambs of God. And anyone who goes into ministry or service of the church for any other reason has no business being there. Though his faithful service will greatly glorify God, it will come with some downsides. (laughs) You notice just a few verses ago, Peter wanted to go fishing. The thought struck him. And so he dressed himself and he went out and he went fishing. But one day, the day will come when in service to Christ, all that freedom will be gone. And someone else will dress him for a different occasion. And they'll take him to a place where he does not want to go. And he will be executed. By the time John is writing this, it already happened. Oh, what sorrow. With what sorrow. Pride, yes, but what sorrow with which John must have written these words, remembering his dear friend. John gives us a lot of details about Peter's restoration to Christ. He's a good friend. If Peter's sinful failures will be known to all the world, then so too will his great restoration. Peter would go on from this moment to faithfully serve Christ for 30 years, all the while knowing how it was going to end. Jesus said of the two debtors, he who is forgiven much, loves much. Peter loved much. I think when we don't love Christ enough to put him first in everything, it must be because we fail to grasp just how much we've been forgiven. How else does a man devote himself to 30 years of this kind of service knowing what awaits at the end except that he knows how much he's been forgiven? It's a good question to ask ourselves often. Does this put Christ first? And if not, why not? Now, it's not to say that Peter had achieved spiritual perfection. Following Jesus, they're now walking down the beach, and he notices John following behind them. What a friendship these two must have had. In the Gospels, they're nearly always side by side. And Peter, knowing now that he is to die, looks behind and wonders what will become of his dear friend and Jesus' beloved disciple. What will become of John? And given the context, the question is innocent enough. Jesus does not accuse Peter of sin for asking, but when Peter asks, what about him? Will he have to pay the same price as I? Jesus answers, it's none of your business. He's not harsh about it. It's just matter of fact and instructional. It's none of your business. Remember, he's preparing these men for ministry. And what Peter's at risk of Here, not in this moment, but the risk it presents, where this line of questioning can often lead, is to disobedience. There's a kind of person who says they want to follow Christ, but they talk a lot about it. They have a lot of questions and debate about what it looks like or how you would know that you're doing it. They want to talk about following Jesus, to debate what it looks like in a given situation. They want to judge others for the ways that they try to follow Christ. They want to speculate about the future of the church. And oops, in all of that talk and speculation, we never actually got around to being Christ-like in the things we say and do. 
Sometimes people claim to be desperately seeking the will of God for their lives. And they get very focused on discussing and debating the minute details. So much so that they completely ignore what God has clearly revealed. Another pastor describes it as being so deeply interested in God's secret counsel that we fail to pay attention to his revealed will. Kids, another pastor uses the example of a man who's walking through the woods and suddenly gets shot with a poison arrow that comes out of nowhere. And what's a man to do in a moment like that? What what if he pulled out the arrow and as the poison is working through its body, he said, I wonder what kind of wood this arrow was made from. What kind of bird produced these feathers? I wonder if the man who shot this arrow was tall or short. That'd be pretty ridiculous, right? What the man ought to do is to do something about the poison. Jesus wants his disciples' focus to be not on themselves and not on one another and not on speculation, but on doing his will. He says, feed my lambs, follow me if it is my will. He and his will are the focus. We can love others and be concerned for them as Peter is for John. We can have questions and be curious about what is the will of God. But these things must never hinder our work of actually doing God's revealed will and devoting our lives to his service. We can't just be all talk. It's not to say we get no insight into John's future. We do, but it comes not from Christ's answers, but from how John ends his gospel. He finishes this gospel some 30 years after this walk on the beach. And he looks back now with understanding, clarity of the different callings that he and Peter were given All the disciples served under the authority of Christ's commissioning in chapter 20. All the disciples served under the commission to feed his lambs that he emphasized here. But what that looked like in their lives varied from man to man. And Peter shepherded the flock as a leader, a church planter, and an elder and advisor among the local churches. John fed the flock most evidently through his testimony through writing down the things that he saw and heard and received from the Lord, this gospel and his epistles and the revelation that he received and testified to at the end of his life. The historian observes that there's no belittling of either disciple, one called to strategic pastoral ministry and a martyr's crown, the other to a long life and a strategic witness in written form. That includes, almost as an aside, John's witness here against one of the rumors that had been circulating in the churches over the years. I think this is interesting because testifying to the truth, which is John's focus here at the end, also means exposing error as error, not ignoring it. And some in the church were saying that Jesus' answer to Peter meant that John was not going to die before the second coming. It's easy to make such errors. We make them today when instead of focusing our understanding and application of the Bible on what Christ emphasizes and clearly reveals, we act as though there's some secret 
more important meaning that we have to dig and find. John's testimony is not about secret meanings or hidden truths. He's telling us about what he saw. He told us in the prologue, remember 20 chapters ago, he told us what this book was going to be about. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. He said right then in chapter 1 that John the Baptist had borne witness about this glory and that John's testimony was true. And now, 20 chapters later, 20 chapters through which John reveals to us by the Holy Spirit the glory of Christ, he ends it with the same thing. We know that his testimony is true. Just as the other John had, this John testified faithfully to what he had seen and heard. And what was it? His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. His glory. John's gospel is a witness to the glory of Christ. This is his faithful service. His testament. His testimony of Christ's glory and all the signs that point to it and confirm it. The Greek puts all the emphasis on the word true. John's testimony of Jesus' glory is true. Not complete, he tells you that. Oh my, to write a complete testimony of the glory of Jesus would take more books than the world could hold. You know, I used to think that that was hyperbole. I used to think that verse 25 was John's hyperbole, which is fine. He uses that from time to time. It wouldn't be an issue. But on further reflection, I don't think it's hyperbole at all. Record all the facts of Jesus' life. Then record the significance of all of those words and events in redemptive history and in among the heavenly council. Then record the significance of all those words and events in the hearts and lives of everyone who heard and saw Jesus. Then analyze all of that through every divine attribute. What this event revealed about his love and his power and his wisdom and his justice and so on. No, I don't think verse 25 is hyperbole at all. What's really remarkable is that John was able to capture so much glory and so much truth in so few pages. And he says, this is it. This is my testimony. My faithful witness to the glory of Christ. And as we wrap up our time in John, I hope we see clearly not just what he said, though that is most important, but the impact that it had on him. For if these things are true, a person's life must be changed. He saw these things, he knew them to be true, and his whole life was changed. He became completely devoted to the service of his master, the Lord Jesus Christ. And not by his own strength, but by Christ's. To read these things And to know that they're true. How could we do anything else? So where do we go from here?